Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verses 39 through 41. If you are reading from the Bibles at the back of the church, this passage begins on page 1065. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Just kidding. Hello, Grace Community Church. Somehow I managed to mute myself when I meant to unmute myself. Let's take a moment and let's prepare our hearts for God's word with prayer. Father, we ask now that you would work powerfully by your spirit, that you would comfort us by your spirit. You give us a vision of your son, Jesus, We could see him as he truly is, as both our savior and our judge. Lord, humble us before your mighty hand. Show us what we do not know in your word. Make us more like yourself. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, welcome again. If you don't know me, I'm Pastor Gordon. And we are working through the Gospel of John together as a church. And just as we spend some focused time at the very beginning of chapter 9, I would like us to spend some focused time even on one verse. So you're getting to know a little bit about me in terms of how I like to study Scripture sometimes. Sometimes I like to look really intently at one particular verse. And so today we're going to look almost entirely at chapter 9, verse 39. But I encourage you to open your Bibles and to look with me and to see what we're studying together. As I come to this sermon, I want to give you an illustration that hopefully it helps you. It's certainly something that I remember growing up when I first saw The Wizard of Oz. As you'll probably remember, at the very end of The Wizard of Oz... They get into this massive throne room after this long journey, and they're looking for the wizard, and they see this amazing display of smoke and a booming voice, and then inevitably, you get that wonderful voice, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? It almost becomes a saying. There's behind the curtain manipulating all these gears and making the whole thing work together is the wizard. The wizard is behind all the majestic display. To a certain extent, this sermon intends to take us behind the curtain. For the first portion of the sermon, in fact, you may not even, you may wonder like, wait, are we in John 9 verse 39? Yo, we are. We're going to get there. I want to take you to see the man behind the curtain if that makes sense. This verse is packed with meaning. Chapter 9, verse 39 reads, as Jesus speaking, for judgment I came into this world in order that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. 
And our main idea as we examine this text today is that Jesus is the judge who will restore true and lasting righteousness. Jesus is the judge who will restore true and lasting righteousness. Now, I don't know if you notice this. I sometimes forget it myself as we're working through the Gospels. But this story stands just adjacent to the climax of human history. All of human history was working to the moment when Christ would go and sacrifice himself on the cross for his people and ransom them for himself. But this moment, even as it's so close to something so powerful, it's, it's like a pebble in the river. It's shaped by an immense volume of context that's rushing around it, underneath it, behind it, over it. It's this tiny little thing that's been packed in by all this force. And so in order to grasp this pebble, we need to walk into the stream. We need to actually go into the river. We need to wade into the current and feel the force of the current that's shaping this pebble if we're going to grasp it. And so I want to invite us to wade into the stream of God's providence and to feel the weight of his glory here. And in order to do that, we're going to work through a series of steps to help us understand this verse. And the first step that we need to think about is what biblical righteousness means. The first step is that, biblically speaking, righteousness means right relationship. Righteousness means right relationship. In the immediate context of this story, as you know, the beggar has been falsely judged. Right? He was brought before a court of his peers, and they judged his profession of faith, and they found it wanting. They said, you're no true Jew. You're not a member of our community. And they threw him out. They cut him off from their charity. They cut him off from their support. He'd been falsely judged. And that's why when Jesus goes to find the beggar, you'll remember that he reveals himself to him as the son of man. We've said that that's not an ordinary term. You see that term in, in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And that's, that's a special term. The Son of Man is God's agent of judgment. He's the one person who can vindicate the righteous and condemn the guilty. Which, asks you, which causes your mind to ask, or that causes my mind to ask, what does a judge do? A judge restores justice. No one's particularly interested in seeing a judge until you've been wronged. I had no interest really in ever seeing a judge. Uh, when I was in seminary, though, I had a friend who got into a very dangerous circumstance. There was a man who dogged her steps continually he, he began to give her unwanted gifts. He showed up at her apartment when she didn't ask him to. He started doing things and saying things that made her very frightened. And she didn't know how to stop this. She asked him, she said, please don't do this. Please stop this. But it wasn't until I, with her, went and sought the order of a judge, an emergency order of restraint to command this person to do what they were not willing to do otherwise. 
It's only when you've been wronged that all of a sudden a judge becomes a wonderful thing. You want someone who can stand up and say, this is what is right, this is what is true, and I'm going to order circumstances into accordance with what is right and what is good and with what is true. So Jesus then says in verse 39, for judgment I came into this world. This man has been falsely judged. And Jesus offers him a response saying, I came into this world to execute judgment. So this offers us an excellent opportunity to define what justice and righteousness are in terms of scripture. Biblically speaking, even though in English the words righteousness and justice are somewhat distinct. In English we think of righteousness as having a moral component, meaning it's doing the right thing. And we think of justice as an activity that resolves when that's gone wrong. In other words, justice is what happens when the right thing hasn't been done. But in the Bible, these two words are in fact identical. And they refer to the same thing. They refer to one basic idea. Righteousness means right relationship. Specifically, righteousness means to be in right standing with someone or something else. Righteousness means to be in right standing with someone or something else. And in the Bible, there are three dimensions to biblical righteousness. The first is between God and us, a vertical dimension. To be in right standing or to have right relationship between us and God. The next is between us and each other. And the third is between us and the created order. To be righteous means to be or to have or to enjoy right standing, being in loving, joyful harmony with God, with each other, and with all of creation. And what is painfully obvious, I'm certain, to everyone in this room is that those three things have been disordered. That justice and righteousness have been lost. That the right standing between human beings and God isn't present. That the right standing between human beings and each other isn't present. And that a right relationship between human beings and the creation is not present. They've been disordered. So that brings us to our second point. Our second point is that if righteousness means right relationship, then it's fairly obvious that righteousness, both broadly and in this context, has been lost. In this immediate context, righteousness has been lost because this man no longer has right standing with his community, and he no longer has, in their mind, right standing with God. And all of the created order is going to be now a friction against him. And in the broader context, we can see it all around us. Well, the Bible has an explanation for why we see it all around us. It would say that as a result of Adam's sin, our first father, both just society and indeed all of human righteousness has been corrupted. And that's because in Adam, all humanity has been involved in rebellion against God. Our nature has been perverted. 
And consequently, all of our relationships have fallen into varying degrees of disorder and corruption. But God, in his gracious mercy, determined not to just leave circumstances as they are. He determined to restore righteousness. Now, there are lots of ways that we can talk about how God chooses to restore righteousness, but two important ways about how God foreshadows how he's going to restore righteousness are covenants and judges. So that brings us to our third point. Covenants and judges are limited means of restoring a measure of righteousness. Covenants and judges are limited means of restoring a measure of righteousness. A covenant is, in most cases, a temporary, limited, and symbolic agreement whereby a measure or a kind of righteousness, that's right relationship, is restored. Could be between us and God. In this case, in the Bible, it's often speaking about between us and God. But as you'll notice in the Bible, covenants also involve us and each other. And they often involve us and the creation under us. These major elements, for instance, of the, of the covenant of Moses are that God restores right relationship between himself and Israel, between Israel and Israel, and between Israel and the land. So you can see all three of those dimensions. This is an agreement that is always an overflow out of a divine act of grace. God always graciously acts to save his people, and it's out of that gracious act that he establishes a covenant. He saves Abraham, and he, put, and he sends him to the land. He, he saves the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he establishes his covenant with them. He puts David on the throne, and he establishes a covenant with him. So it's always out of an overflow of grace between God and certain people under certain conditions whereby a measure of right relationship can be restored. Now, a judge, if we're speaking biblically, is someone who establishes, restores, and maintains justice. A judge is someone who establishes, restores, and maintains justice, often by rendering judgment. And he does so in all of these categories, properly speaking. So we can think of famous judges like Moses. I mean, you may think of Moses as a prophet, but Moses functioned as a judge. He was the one who directed the people's relationship between them and God. He also oversaw their relationships between one and another. He even establishes justice, uh, judge, judges to accomplish that. And he also oversees their relationship to the land of God's promise. Or we can think of Samuel. Samuel at least is called a judge, and he does the same thing. They acted as priests in many cases. They upheld social order. And in so doing, they led the people in right relationship to the land God promised and to each other. But while these covenants and judges in various ways point towards righteousness, meaning they, they point in the direction of restoring right relationship between God and us, yet none of them could of themselves 
ultimately achieve or establish true or lasting righteousness. We know this, right? If we look at the narrative of Scripture, you see that Moses, despite his best efforts, does not manage to convince Israel not to rebel against God, right? Moses, despite his just and right rulings, doesn't actually prevent the people from breaching justice with each other. And even though God sent judge after judge after judge, king after king, prophet after prophet, the ultimate picture is that the covenant between God and his people is breached. They do not maintain righteousness. And that's because the covenant in and of itself was unable to produce it. And the judge in and of himself or herself was not able to produce it in the people. Moses couldn't make you righteous. Even the covenant can't make you righteous. And that's because underneath all of this, sin perverts and corrupts the right ordering of a just society. And sin has affected every part of every human being. So that brings us to our fourth point. Sinful human beings are not capable of righteousness. Righteousness means right relationship. Covenants and judges are limited ways of establishing that right relationship. Or, but a sinful human being is not capable of righteousness. We said this already. In Adam, all humanity has been involved in rebellion against God. Our nature has been perverted. Consequently, all of our relationships have fallen into varying degrees of disorder and corruption. And what's important to know, and what we must all know, is that righteousness has not just been lost by some, it has been lost by all. It's not as though there were just some people who fell out of right relationship with God, each other, and the world. Everyone fell out of right relationship with God, each other, and the world, despite appearances sometimes. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that being Adam, and death through sin, so also death was passed on to all men because all sinned. And critically, not only do we lack this righteousness, we don't have it, we cannot restore it. We lack both the desire and the ability to restore it. Romans 8, verses 7 through 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, that means the mind that is set on our natural uh, nature, the way that we think as children of Adam, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But the good news is that even in Adam's sin, God promised to deliver for himself a people out from under his just wrath. So the picture that we have is that righteousness, right standing, was lost between God and us, between us and each other, and between us and creation. And God is justly angry with all sinners. He would be absolutely just to judge every single sinner just as that is. But that's not the nature of God. God determined to save out from that group a people for himself. 
and to restore righteousness between himself and them. In time, he covenanted with Abraham. And then he covenanted with Moses to set apart just such a people. In time, he appointed judges and kings to maintain that covenant relationship with them, to uphold righteousness and justice. But broadly speaking, that particular nation remained in persistent rebellion. They were hostile to God. They did not submit to his law. They rebelled against it again and again. And worst of all, all the while that they did so, they imagined themselves to be righteous. So God sends prophets. And in particular, he sends one prophet, Isaiah, to declare three things to this people. To tell them, one, their true condition, namely, you don't have righteousness. Two, his impending judgment. I'm going to judge you for your lack of righteousness. And three, his promised deliverance. I'm going to work righteousness in you. Isaiah chapter 1 tells us their condition. In verse 2, he says, Children I have reared, but they have rebelled against me. In verse 4, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. So that's their condition. They don't think that's what they are, but that's what they are. And then in chapter 6, we see God's judgment. As a result of their stubborn rebellion, he says in chapter 6, verse 10, that the message he gives to Isaiah will make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And now, now, prick up. This is where we're getting back to 939, okay? Make their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Did you hear Jesus just then? For judgment, I came into this world. That those who do not see may see, and that those who do see may become blind. Now notice, that was only one half of it, because in God's mercy, he doesn't decree an utter judgment. He would be absolutely just to, right? God is absolutely just to condemn all of the human race, to leave none alive, to cut them all off from himself. That would be just in the sense we use that word in English. But that is not what God does. Instead, across the book of Isaiah, we see unfolded a new and wonderful promise of deliverance. In chapter 42, verses 6 through 7, he promises to send someone who's going to open the eyes of the blind. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So God is saying, I'm going to send someone who's going to be a light to the nations. He's going to open the eyes of the blind, even the spiritually blind. 
In Isaiah 32, 1 through 3, we see that he's going to reign. He's going to judge. He says, behold, a king will reign in righteousness. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed. And the ears of those who hear will give attention. That's pointing way into the future. That's the long-term picture is that God is not just going to open the eyes of people spiritually or, I mean, physically, but spiritually. And he's not just going to allow people to hear his message with their physical ears. He's going to allow them to hear it with their heart and respond. And now perhaps you can see why John set chapter 9 right after chapter 8, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who walks by my light will not walk in darkness. And when he opens this story, just before he touches the blind man's face, he says, as though he were looking around at his disciples, being like, prick up your ears. He says, I am the light of the world. In this very passage, friends, you are watching both prophecies fulfilled. Simultaneously. That to some, the word and the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ opens their eyes and suddenly they see. And to others, that same word and work closes and hardens their heart. At the same time, deliverance and judgment are happening. Do you see it? So what makes the difference? Why for some do the eyes open and why for others do their hearts close? That brings us to our fifth point. Our relationship to salvation then hinges on how we see righteousness. Our relationship to salvation hinges on how we see righteousness. I don't know, it, it, this may have come very easily to you, but for me, I struggled hard this week to try and fill out these sentences that Jesus is giving us in verse 39, where he says, for judgment I came into this world in order that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. It seems simple in a sense. I think I've got a way of explaining it. We've already shown last week that those who do not see are those who, like this blind man, by God's grace have become aware of their moral and spiritual incapacity and inability. In other words, that the blind man wasn't just aware that he couldn't see with his eyes, he also became aware that he did not have righteousness. He needed a miracle. In short, they do not see themselves as righteous. So if you fill that in here, for judgment I came into this world in order that those who do not see themselves as righteous may see. Okay? Then those by implication who do see, those like the Pharisees who presumed upon their imagined moral or spiritual ability, who think that they, by something they are or something they do, can please God, who are they? They are those who see themselves as righteous. Those who see themselves as righteous. So fill it in. For judgment I came into this world in order that those who do not see 
themselves as righteous may see. And those who do see themselves as righteous may become blind. The difference between these two kinds of people is those who know that they neither possess nor can achieve righteousness as opposed to those who do not. Those who see themselves as righteous as opposed to those who do not. The difference is not between people who have some sort of inherent righteousness, like as though the poor, simply by being poor, automatically have right standing with God. Or that the religious leaders, simply because they're religious leaders, couldn't possibly have right standing with God. It's not an inherent present, presence or lack of righteousness. The difference is between those who think they do have righteousness versus those who know that they do not have it. Because in fact, neither group possesses true righteousness. Now, if we were to press the point just a bit further, you'd see that these two groups understand their relationship to covenants differently, right? So the one group rightly understands their relationship to the covenants. The blind man looks at the covenant and he says, this is a means by which God is telling me that I don't have any righteousness, that I need his righteousness, he looks at judges and he says, these judges, they're, they're trying to show me what a just society looks like, but they can't give me righteousness. So what is his conclusion? Someday God is going to make a new covenant. Someday God is going to send a judge, a real judge, a judge who's able to make righteousness. Now, the other crew they look at these exact same things and they arrive at completely different conclusions. They look at the covenant and they say, aha, see, God has made a way for me to restore my righteousness and to be made right with God. If I do this, I will live. And I have done it, so I shall live. They look at judges and they say, as long as judges rightly understand this and they help people do these things, then we'll be fine. What gets sideways is when people don't understand this right and they don't do the right thing. When they stop doing the right thing, then the right thing goes away. But thankfully, I know the right thing. I do the right thing. I am one of those right people. The truth and the most fundamental reality that is at work in this passage is how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as fundamentally capable of or inherently possessing righteousness? And most of us are probably not going to say, I came prepackaged to this world with all that I needed in order to please God. But we are far more likely, because our culture continually tells us the second one, to think that while I may not be perfect, I can certainly change myself and make myself good enough. Good enough for government work and good enough for God.
Do you see yourself as fundamentally capable of or possessing righteousness? Or do you see yourself as a sinner in desperate need of grace? Do you need someone else to come and establish righteousness between you and God? You see, the thing, to bring up this earlier illustration about my friend in seminary, she felt helpless. She had done everything she knew to do. She told the guy to stop. She sent him notes, she sent him emails, she changed, she moved once. She, she did everything that she knew to try and make this stop, but she was powerless to effect her deliverance. And the posture of someone who understands God rightly must at some point come to that position of helplessness. They must come to the conclusion, I cannot remedy this situation. I need someone else to step in and do for me what I cannot do myself. And that's why biblical righteousness then it is this fundamental distinction that creates painful rifts in our society. That some of us think, oh yes, we have what we need or we can do what we need in order to make things right and others of us don't. We know now that right relationship to others is ultimately impossible in any real or lasting sense apart from the intervention of God. Biblical righteousness, then, is the foundation of a just society. And for a just society to survive or to exist, it must be administered by a judge. There must be a just judge. And that's why God's work of deliverance cannot exist apart from his work of judgment. That's why Jesus says in chapter 9, verse 39, that he did not come only to save, but to judge. Which brings us to our sixth point. Redemption requires righteousness. Therefore, redemption involves justice. Look again at verse 39. He says, for judgment I came into this world in order that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. I approach this text in this order so that we can more clearly see the direct relationship between Jesus' work of redemption or deliverance and his work of judgment. How many churches wish to pit these things against each other? Would you admit it? I certainly did when I was reading this passage. And you read, for judgment I came into this world. Don't you think of John three seventeen, Like just straight out of the gate, you go, but... I did not come into the world for judgment. I came that the world would be saved. And you sit there and you're like, are you talking out of both sides of your mouth, Jesus? What do you mean you came for judgment? I thought you came to save. This is why we have to show carefully and think deeply about why redemption involves judgment. They go together. Righteous... Uh, the two of these things, redemption and judgment, are inextricably linked. They're two sides of the same coin. Because if righteousness, right relationship, has been lost, and if Jesus is to restore it, then two things have to happen. He has to vindicate the righteous, that those who do not see may see, and he has to condemn the guilty, that those who do see may become blind. He has to do both things 
if my friend were going to be established in right relationship to the world, the judge had to say, you are being wrongly oppressed. This person should not be doing these things. And he has to say to the person, stop doing these things. He, he has to, she can't be delivered unless something is judged. It can't happen. And if Romans 3.10, which recites Psalm 14, 1 through 3, says, none is righteous, no, not even one, no one does good, not even one, then Jesus needs to create for himself a righteous people. It isn't just a matter, and this is where this story breaks down. You've got a person who's relatively innocent and she just needs to be vindicated. The story breaks down because we don't have an innocent person in this circumstance. There's no one in the category who Jesus just needs to save. He needs to create a righteous people because none of us have any. He must work righteousness on their behalf and then he has to impute righteousness to their account. If judgment if justice is to endure, then Jesus must condemn those who persist in resisting the rule and the reign of his righteousness. Which brings us to our seventh point. Jesus can and Jesus must become our righteousness because Jesus will reign in righteousness. The difference between the beggar and the Pharisee was not only in how they saw themselves, it was in how they saw Jesus. It isn't just that they looked, that the beggar, as it were, had a low view of himself and the Pharisees had a high view of themselves. This isn't a question of self-esteem. The two things, just like redemption and judgment go together, so also how we see ourselves is informed by how we see Christ. You will see yourself accurately to the degree that you see Christ accurately. And you will see yourself inaccurately to the degree that you see Christ inaccurately. What makes a Christian is not only that they know themselves to be a sinner, though they certainly do. Nor is it only that they know Christ to be righteous. They must see these two realities, that Christ is righteous and that I am a sinner, in concert. Christ must become for them, by their faith, their righteousness. Not just righteousness, their righteousness. And that, friend, is where a Christian's joy comes from. That is what makes the second coming of Christ on the last day as a judge, while yet an awesome reality, not ultimately terrifying, but a glorious and a good thing. My friend, while she was nervous, she was so relieved to walk out of that courtroom. I cannot tell you how good she felt having a judge rule on her situation. Oh, friends, Jesus coming as a judge is a wonderful thing. Because Jesus, by his life of perfect obedience and atoning death, has satisfied the wrath and the justice of God. But he's done more than that. He has propitiated him. 
That means he won for us God's favor. He didn't just pay the debt setting our accounts to zero and leave us to figure out the rest. He paid the debt and he gave us everything that we need in order to be satisfying, pleasing to God. Romans 3, 21 through 26 but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So that's the judges and the covenants, they're pointing, right? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. To compress it, sometimes long sentences are harder. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Or 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him, that is God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. Friend, Jesus is the judge and the king. He can not only lift your sins off your back, but he can lift you into his gracious presence. He can give you righteousness, and in so doing, he can give you peace. And it is that reality that caused the beggar to fall down and worship Jesus because he saw in Jesus his only hope of righteousness. He trusted Jesus to be his righteousness and to vindicate him from the corruption of the Jewish elders. He trusted Jesus to deliver him out of sin and suffering and also from injustice and oppression into his eternal and unendingly righteous kingdom. In essence, when he falls down, he says with Paul in Philippians 3, 7 through 11, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The beggar knew that Jesus, and only Jesus, but certainly Jesus, can make him right. Because Jesus is going to make all things right. So let's have a few applications. What are the implications of Jesus as our judge? The first thing is the obvious one. Perhaps they all are. But the first is exchange your imagined righteousness for Jesus' true righteousness. If you came here today and you're not yet a believer and you're holding on to the lie that the world has fed you, 
that you are able of yourself to make things right between yourself and others and between yourself and God and between yourself and the world, if you are buying the legalism by the shovelful that is being thrown at you from every angle, that by the way that you relate with the natural environment, you can atone for your sins, or by the way that you relate to other human beings, you can make things right, or that you can establish some kind of eternal just society between you and make yourself pleasing to God, surrender it. You can't. You need a judge. You need someone to make that righteousness for you. Repent, turn to Jesus, trust in him. But secondly, if you have received Jesus as your judge, then thank God for opening the eyes of your heart to see Jesus. Because when we look at verse 39, we realize that the same thing that Jesus did in the hearts of some caused their hearts to become like stone, and in others, it softened their heart to eternal life. So take this week and thank God. God in Jesus Christ, that he opened your eyes, that you see him as your judge, that you want his righteousness because that is a gift of grace. The third one would be because Jesus is our judge, we can let go of vengeance. I don't know how many of us are holding on to the wrongs that have been done to us at small levels or at great levels by those that are around us, by the world we live in, by the society we're navigating. And while this doesn't mean that the church never turns to a human court, yet it does mean that Christians never place their ultimate trust, hope, or satisfaction in them either. Friend, I wish I could tell you that the disproportionate number of stories that I could share with you about men and women that have gone to the court to seek justice always landed on receiving it. But far more often, I know stories of men and women that went to the court to get justice and they did not receive it. We do not entrust our longing for righteousness to the human court. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So when we fix our hopes on the justice of Jesus, when we know that for judgment he came into this world, we can rest our cares in his just rule. Fourth, because Jesus is judge, we can walk in new and sober holiness. The fear of the Lord, the great judge, far from being an obstacle to our holiness, is its very foundation. Once we see Christ for all that he is, our redeemer and our judge, we are actually quickened toward godly and holy living. Titus 2, 11 through 14 says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." which means the fifth application is that because Jesus is the judge, the church is responsible to proclaim and embody, but not create a just society. The church is responsible to proclaim and to embody, but not to create a just society. The Bible teaches that we as Christians should definitely be concerned about justice, and there are some areas where I think we could probably grow in our concern about justice. 
The Bible says that we should strive to embody compassionate, generous justice within our communities, that when, when the world looks at the household of faith, that they should say, wow, there's a just society. They relate to one another in righteousness and in justice. But we need to distinguish our responsibility from proclaiming justice and from embodying justice in the church from the responsibility to achieve it. I'm not saying that we don't need, that we that it would be wrong to advocate for justice in the political sphere or that it would be wrong to use political means to obtain a particular end. I'm not saying that. The responsibility, however, does not land on the church. The church is not tasked with creating a just society. The church is tasked with proclaiming the coming just society of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the great judge, is the only one who can ultimately and finally achieve true and lasting justice. And the church's task is to proclaim and embody it, to be a living picture of the righteous kingdom of Jesus Christ, which gives us our last application. We should live in the joyful hope that one day Christ will reign in righteousness. And I will forego preaching a whole nother sermon on this point. But deep down, you need to know about your pastor that this is why I wanted to preach this sermon. It's a heavy sermon, yeah. To see Christ as judge is a heavy thing, but it's a wonderful thing. Oh, friend, if I could just give you a picture of what the Bible says Jesus will do when he comes as the judge. Think of all the brokenness in this world. Think of how the animals are afraid of us because of our sin. Think of how nature is bent under, under hurricanes and floods and tornadoes and tsunamis. The very earth itself shakes under our sin. Think of how human relationships exist in such a way that a man can walk into a school and shoot dozens of children. Think of how all of these horrible things go on and then think that when Christ comes, he will end it all. He will turn it back on itself. Friend, Jesus, by his work on the cross, has made peace, yes, between you and God. Yes, also between us and each other. But on the last day, Christ will make peace between us and all things. The animals will no longer fear us. The earth will no longer quake or rage. Storms will no longer destroy. Death will be no more. Neither sorrow, nor sadness, nor tears, nor crying. Because when Jesus Christ comes to rule once and for all, the old order of things will have passed away. And behold, he will make all things new. And it's in light of that, I hope that in your heart you could say with me now as a member of Grace Community Church, I thank God that for judgment Jesus Christ came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who do see may become blind. Amen. God have mercy on the preaching of your word. Oh God, work in our hearts by your spirit to give us a vision of your son. And Lord, work us until we see those convictions that John Newton knew so deeply. That I am a great sinner, but Christ is a still greater savior. May we cast ourselves on his righteousness and find it strong enough to hold us against the storm of the wrath of God. Father, comfort us in your son, and we ask it for Jesus' sake.